some time with him at Joshua Springs. Well, fast forward, you know, it's 10 years later and I'm in Idaho and turns out he's from Idaho and that's where he was from all along. And, and it's just been neat to watch God get a hold of Richard's heart and his life. He's in Bible college now, uh, studying to be a pastor. I think God's got a call in his life and is going to do some exciting things uh, in and through him. So I asked him to, to come tonight and to bring the word for us tonight. So uh, I just, uh, I, I, I know you're going to be blessed. And, and I just wanted to, you to kind of get a little bit of the background of our story and things that have happened uh, from uh, between us and them. So anyways, I just uh, make him feel welcome. He's going to bring us a word, Acts 16. Come on, brother. Good evening. Oh, it is absolutely awesome being home again. Thirteen years and twenty-nine palms. That'll and I'll do funny things to people, I suppose. Um, Richard Wagemaker. I am from Idaho. I'm actually from uh, Western Idaho, uh, Homedale, to be more specific. My wife's family's from here in Twin Falls, and naturally, left the Marine Corps. Twin Falls is where we ended up. So it's uh, it was awesome leaving uh, Joshua Springs, leaving 29 Palms, Southern California, and knowing that you know, we had a brother that we'd spent time with down there in California with a church up here. We decided to come for a visit, and just awesome. It's a blessing. It's a great blessing to be here, and I appreciate you having me here. With that being said, tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Um, we'll be talking about Paul in chapter 16, and it's actually one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's what I would probably call like a, like a power chapter. It'll take us through a short uh, story of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, And it just kind of helps us see a servant's heart, helps us see a believer's heart, our hearts, how our hearts and our mentality is supposed to be when talking about trials, uh, tribulations, talking about uh, some of our temptations, how we're going to address those things. So I guess you could pretty much sum it up, too. It's an indirect way of dealing with spiritual warfare. So, before we get into that, Father in Heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us all here tonight. Thank you for getting us here safely, that we could hear your word and worship you, God, as free men and women. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we go through tonight and the rest of the week, that you would just etch your word into our hearts. Help us to be examples and ambassadors for you, Lord, you've called us to be. Continue to watch over us, protect us. We love you, Father, and pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, chapter 16. Actually, uh, this will be Paul's second time uh, in this area. We'll see it also in chapter 14. He was in uh, Durban, Lystra roughly five years ago. So we're picking up his second uh, trip. Verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all know, all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. So a couple of awesome things that we pick up on right away. One, Paul was there roughly five years prior to that. And you'll see that in chapter 14. So he's coming back into this area, probably uncertain what he's going to see. For those of us that are familiar with it, I would absolutely, uh, you should read chapter 14. 
him and Barnabas go to the same area five years prior, and you know they, they heal a man, and everybody starts worshiping. They start greeting Paul and Barnabas as gods. And obviously Paul, and we know Paul very well, he's, uh, he makes sure he gets his word out there, could not believe what was going on, tore off his, some of his clothes, and went running ahead of the people trying to tell them, you know, what are you doing? We're not gods. You know, we're here as ambassadors trying to sh- share with you Jesus Christ. And shortly after that, we see some of the uh, Pharisees come in, stir up the crowds, and end up stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city. So it went two extremes the last time he was there. So here he is, he's back, and I'm sure he's seeing good things. One, he finds Timothy. Same Timothy we see his uh, letters go to later on in the New Testament. Um, we see the, uh, the relationship he develops with Timothy. The letters, First and Second Timothy, were very, very deep letters. He also called Timothy you know, his son, his son in the faith. He was taking Timothy along with him so he could teach him, train him. He could be his mentor in the faith, and later... He puts Timothy ahead of some of the churches. The interesting thing, verse 3, he takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Which seems really weird considering Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. Excuse me. In chapter 15, we see the letters and decrees that we talk about in chapter 16 that were going to be passed through everybody. It was to take away the yoke, take away the burdens that a lot of people were trying to put onto the Gentiles. Um, a lot of the Jewish faith was still seeping into a lot of those early churches, trying to put those burdens on them, that yoke. You have to be circumcised. You have to adhere to the Mosaic law on top of the new Christian faith or the, the way. In chapter 15, there's the decree that says, you know, that word didn't come from any of us. You don't have to adhere to, you know, those laws. They were trying to lighten the burden for him. So we get to look at Paul's heart, which is incredible. Paul, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians, you go in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, chapter 8, Paul tries to make himself out to be all things to all men. He wants to do whatever he can to reach people. He tries to take himself to any level that he has to, to put himself on the same level to understand where they're coming from so he can show them Jesus effectively. He does the same thing with Timothy. He doesn't have to have Timothy circumcised. doesn't have to. We know that. At this point in time, they didn't have the word right in front of them that we do. It would basically be the same thing as uh, we go into an area that doesn't like beards. For whatever reason, beards were absolutely against their particular philosophy. We as Christians, and everybody's got to scratch their face, where is he going with this? We as Christians, we know... We're okay with beards. We're okay with certain other things. Beards are fine. So you can do one of two things. You can either go into the church with your beard, and you can preach, and people are just going to be looking at you funny. Mm, How can he teach us anything about religion or spirituality or the way or Jesus? How can he teach us anything when he's got that beard on his face? And you can spend the time first justifying your beard and then moving into what you're there for to preach the gospel, or, or... you can forego some of your rights. There's nothing wrong with it. You forego some of your rights out of love. You can shave your face. And then you skip that step of having to battle something and go right into the gospel unhinged, which is what, he, which is what he's trying to do. So don't look at me too funny. I'm not saying if you want to be a Christian or whatever else, you've got to shave your face. You're fine. So don't go crazy. So he has him um, circumcised because the Jews that were in that area, and he goes uh, right into it. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. 
increased the number daily and strengthened one of two reasons. First, they were taking away the yoke, the burden that a lot of other people were trying to put on them. Which is one of those things we really love is we have some of those freedoms, do we not? And another thing, they were getting the word. A lot of people think you need big fancy gimmicks, ministries that are money trains that try and drive the point home or you're going to get you know, 100 people to bang on doors whether they like it or not. You're going to put on a circus or a carnival. A lot of people think you need those things. That's the only way to bring people to a church, if you have money. And it's not the case, is it? We love a lot of the places that we go because we get to hear the Word of God open, freely preached. We get to hear it line by line, verse by verse, precept upon precept. And we get to hear the Word for exactly what it is. Just like them, they were growing. They were increasing in number daily because they were hungry for any part of the Word they could get. Again, an actual church didn't come for another like 200 years or better after, at, at this point. People were meeting in homes. They were meeting at wells. They were meeting down at the rivers, meeting wherever they could and getting bits and pieces of the word that apostles or disciples or whoever it was going to be kind of spreading the word through. So anytime a decree, a doctrine that came from one of the apostles or disciples, from Paul, whether it's for James, whoever it was, they were absolutely hungry for it. Every chance they got. <clears throat> now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So we see Paul trying to push into Asia, being forbidden. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So first he tried to go north into Asia. He was forbidden to go. Didn't work out, so then he decided to push west, and he was also forbidden to go there. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord has called us to preach the gospel to them. So this brings us another Christian that kind of hits another point that kind of um, hits us, like, you know, right up front as believers. All of us have a ministry. Everybody in here has a ministry. Everybody in here has a place to work in the harvest. We're all servants. We're all ministers. Sometimes some of us are ministers, you know, with like a big M. Some of us are ministers with a little M. But we all have a place. And one of the things that kills us, and it kind of uh, is disheartening at times, we want to go somewhere. We want to do something. And a lot of times the spirit might stop us. So the question starts kind of coming across our face is, you know, maybe God doesn't want me to do it. Maybe God doesn't want me there. Maybe I'm really not supposed to be a servant. I'll just be, you know, I'll just do something else or spend my time doing other things. That's one of those spiritual warfare type of situations we're talking about. Um, God does have a place for you. It is a fact that you do have a ministry. Sometimes, though, like here, Paul, Paul is what I would probably call a heavy hitter for the gospel. Paul did a lot. He established a lot of churches. He suffered a lot for it, but he did a lot for, for the, the course of the churches. Um, and even Paul at this point in time probably wasn't the right tool for the right job. Could Paul have done fantastic things in Asia? Absolutely. If he had pushed west into or through Europe, could he have done fantastic things for the churches? 
Absolutely, Paul could have. Instead, if we keep going, right, he has um, going to Macedonia and to Philippi. That's where God wants him to go. That's why it's important for us to stay in tune with the Spirit. That's why it's important for us to read our Bibles and pray every day. It keeps us walking in line, and it keeps us um, with the with the same knowledge of God has a place for me, and we're going to find it. Another reason, man, this thing's going in and out. Any better? I can hear myself echoing in my head. <laughs> Another reason that God um, had him where he was, taking the path that he was, here in verse 16 is the first time we see a shift in the verbiage, in the sentence structure. Um, and they, looking at verse 7, they had come to Mysia. Verse 6, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Spirit. So we see they, them, those guys over there in the corner. Verse 10, it switches. Now after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia. Verse 16, this is where, I'm sorry, verse 10, this is where Paul picks up Luke, the author of Acts. And we'll see it intermittent through the rest of the book of Acts. Sometimes we, we see the, you know, we, I, whatever the case may be, and then it goes back to they, so we can see where Luke starts coming in and out of the book of Acts. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from trials, we, there again, ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Again, no churches at this point in time. Right? People were meeting wherever they could. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in um, First and Second Corinthians. Um, when he writes the letters you know, to, like, to the household of Chloe, you know, he's writing to specific groups, letting everybody know, and they kind of have the uh, letters circulated. Also, it kind of shows us that there was probably not a synagogue in the area. Right? Um, Philippi was um, a colony town, but it was nicer. It wasn't like the capital but it was like a, uh, like a retirement town. Roman officials, Roman military members, when they retired, that was kind of like their go-to place, like Palm Springs in, in 2-9 or something. I don't know why you'd stay down there, but sometimes they do it. We all have, I don't know if there's, how many more of us are military out there? FYI. Awesome. Good deal. Well, when uh, around military bases, guys retire. Some of them don't go too far because they like the amenities, the luxuries that are there. So they'll turn a small town that would normally not be anything, kind of like Palm Springs, because there's absolutely nothing there. It's a very fancy, ritzy area. A lot of retirees go there. Look about the same thing in uh, Philippi. As far as the synagogues, generally a synagogue wouldn't be put into a city unless there was more than um, 10 Jewish males in that city. So we see the uh, Jewish presence in this city pretty minimal if they're meeting people at the, uh, the riverside for prayer. And that's what they're saying. Verse 13, that's where it was customarily made. Verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. 
So she persuaded us. Don't know a lot about her. For whatever reason, Luke kind of, you know, did a real broad stroke of Lydia. We don't know if that was her actual name or if she was from the city of Lydia. What he did give us was basically just the, uh, the important parts. One, she was a seller of purple from the city of uh, Thyatira. Purple, especially for uh, Roman culture, was a very expensive linen. The dyes and everything else they used to make purple was a lot. So she was a businesswoman, and likely she was wealthy. She was also the head of her own household. We don't know if she was married. That's about all we have out of her. What I do like is, like, we don't know what her past life is, but we see what her life is once she accepted Jesus. We know she was a searcher, not a Jewish. She went down there and would listen to them, probably listen to them pray, listen to them sing, uh, listen to them discuss the word. The, uh, the Christian faith still very new at that point in time. Jewish faith, very old at that point in time. So a lot of people, you know, probably knew quite a bit about that. She was still searching. She was still trying to learn. Again, Christians had been in this part of the, I don't know if they even had moved into this part yet. So she was like the rest of us, searching, learning everything she could. So as soon as she accepted Jesus, we see two things, an immediate inward sign and an immediate outward sign. First thing she did, she was baptized. Then her whole household was baptized, which we'll get into that section towards the end of chapter 16. And right after that, what was she craving? Fellowship. She wanted fellowship. And she just was begging to have Paul come back to her place so he could teach. Likely so he could go through the Word and explain to her what it is that she's hearing and what it is that she's feeling. We know that she was listening, and we know that uh, the Lord opened her heart to heed those things. And we've all felt that, haven't we? Before we were before we were saved, we could see it in somebody else. We could see, you know, just the the grace in them. We could see, you know, how they were acting. We could see the light. We could see their joy, their peace, their happiness, their love. Or we heard someone over, you know, talking, and we could just you could feel it. The Lord opening up your heart to what they were saying. And she, you know, kind of it, it ramps it up for everybody, doesn't it? You get really excited, kind of like you've had, you know, five, six too many monsters, and you're just, you know, you're ready to get after it and. You want to have them over at your house so you can learn. Monsters, yeah. I don't know how he stands still. I have one of those and start kind of rocking a little bit. Sit in the corner and just kind of scare people, I guess. So we see, you know, that kind of that awesome experience in her life. Moving on. Now it happened as we went to prayer. Now we're going to start talking about the spiritual warfare thing again. I enjoy talking about spiritual warfare, um, or warfare in general. Uh, I spent 13 years in the Marine Corps. Um, I am a grunt. I spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I spent four years as an urban warfare instructor teaching other people how to go over there. So the idea has always fascinated me. And one of the things that kind of uh, that, that draws me to it, um, Sun Tzu, the guy that wrote The Art of War, he put a quote in there that... Uh, has always changed the way I've read and studied the Bible. Okay. Make a again. Um, and that is, know yourself and know your enemy. In a thousand battles, you will not see peril. I would make an add-on to it as we go through here. Is know yourself, know your enemy, know God. In a thousand battles, you will not see peril. All right, we know things are coming, which we're getting ready to get into now. His upward journey, Paul's on the climb, is he not? 
He comes into Philippi. He just had a great time picking up Timothy in an area that had stoned him five years ago. He's going up and up. You know he's on the call of God. He's up and up. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's up and up, and it's going to hit us. Right? There's going to be trials. There's going to be temptations, right? and it's going to be rough. And obviously trials being something that's supposed to uh, build us up, supposed to make us mature in the faith, temptations being a solicitation to sin, so we know the difference between those two. Um, now it happened as we went to prayer, as we go to church, as we go to the men's advance, as we go to the men's retreat, the youth retreat, the women's retreat, as we go to the marriage retreat, as me and my wife try and go to church, all right, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. That should not be a surprise to us, and likely it wasn't a surprise to Paul. When we're going somewhere to learn about the Word, to learn about the God, the Father that created us, to learn about Jesus, the one that saved us, our salvation, our rock, our anchor, our kinsman redeemer, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that something, whether it's trial, tribulation, temptation, or, as we'll see, an annoyance, it should not surprise us that something is going to kind of try and step in the way to hinder us a little bit. And it's funny how quick that happens, isn't it? A lot of times we get up to go to church. I got two kids. One is three, who definitely look like she got into way too many monsters. And my son just turned one years old. Um, I never get out of bed on time. Once I left the Marine Corps, I said, you know what? No more shaving, no more getting out of bed, and the sun's still down. Unless I'm duck hunting. Completely different. All right, so we get up around 8 o'clock. Like, hey, when you go to church, church is like an hour away between trying to get kids ready to go and getting vehicles started and getting ourselves dressed, you know, trying to get our stuff together. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's friction. There's going to be friction. It's life. It is what it is. And sometimes that little bit of friction creates a much bigger problem. And it kind of stops us from bringing our heart. Just like uh, with a pearl that comes out of a clam or whatever they're called. All that is, is a, it's a grain of sand that gets in there. It's an irritant. And as it rubs and rubs and rubs, it secretes and it builds and builds and builds. And now that piece of sand in what's essentially an infection is worth a whole bunch of money. It builds, it grows. And something can turn into a block, a stumbling block for us that's going to keep us. So we see where Paul goes. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So they, as they're, as they're walking around, they've already been in Philippi for a couple of days. They get met with a girl. All right? um, because of the verbs they used, girl, likely she was younger, most likely uh, less than 18. <clears throat> she was possessed. She was possessed and she was being used. So now we can see the heart of the world. They're going to take advantage of whatever they can. Hearts so hardened absolutely did not mind using a child that was possessed, which can't be fun for anybody, and they were using her to make money. We see Paul's heart. In the New King James, it says greatly annoyed. I don't know why they chose that word, but they did. The Greek word for that one is diaponio. And in the, it's the same word that's in your guys' King James Version Bibles. It means grieved. 
I like that one. So being greatly grieved, turned, said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. So now we see two things. One, Paul had a decision to make. He could have just let it go, not caused a ripple, which we're going to see here in a minute, because he ends up with a whooping from his, uh, from his actions. And he could have just kept going. He decided to do the right thing no matter what. So he cast out the Spirit. Is that our reaction when the world is throwing things at us? Two, we know from basically Genesis all the way up to this point, and we know especially from the teachings in Matthew, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. What we see here is um, the world, sometimes your flesh, but what we see here is the devil trying to run their campaign ad, trying to run the campaigning for Paul's ministry. You cannot let that in. You cannot let the world, you cannot let your flesh, you cannot let the devil maintain, maintain your time frame. We saw the same thing through the Gospels, did we not? When Jesus was dealing, doing a lot of his healings, he said, you know what, go, don't tell anybody it was me. Several of the demons that Jesus had cast out, they were saying, you know, son of God, what are you here to do with us? You're, you know, you're tormenting us before our time. Jesus told him, shut up, keep quiet. Two things. Jesus absolutely doesn't want the enemy running his campaign. And two, it wasn't his time yet. So he was quieting. And we see the exact same thing here. If you start letting the enemy run your campaign, run the campaign for your ministry or for your life, you let in just a little bit. It's going to take over. And it doesn't really seem that way, but trust me, that's what's going to happen. And we have the promises of that outcome riddled throughout the entire scriptures. So Paul shuts it down right off the get-go. We see it in churches um, still today. We see it in a lot of big businesses. They will bring in outsiders that don't care, that are not a part of the flock, that are not a part of the group, not a part of the team, not a part of the family, not a part of the body, whatever verbiage you want to use. And we tell them, like, you know what, our income's hurting. We're hurting. Business is hurting. Whatever you want to use. Go forth and do what you've got to do and bring us money bring us people. So they go out and use a lot of, what, bullying, badgering, fear tactics, um, wheeling and dealing, uh, making promises that don't do what they're supposed to be doing. You know, if you come to this church, you know, and you start giving your money, you're absolutely going to feel the Spirit of God. We have the greatest rock band in the world, and, you know, you're just going to love it. They're using worldly things, that little bit of leaven, to try and bring them in instead of, well, we have a pastor absolutely loves the word of God we have a pastor that teaches us line by line we have a worship team that loves God we have youth ministers that love your children that love teaching children and love showing your kids the face of Jesus but the second you start using somebody else again to run that campaign it's going to start changing they're going to start trying to convict the person to come to church instead of letting the spirit do what he's there for, to convict, to be a revealer, the teacher. Does that make sense? All right, sweet. So, Paul, being greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out that very hour. But, here's that whooping I was talking about. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, 
exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to jump towards the end of chapter 16 real quick. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison, we're in uh, verse 36, sorry. So the keeper of the prison reported the, these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. Paul, Roman. We know um, Timothy, Roman, uh, born in that region. Paul being from, uh, from Tarsus, he has a citizenship. This is actually the first time we see Paul discuss his citizenship. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So what we're seeing here, and there's a lot of different um, focus points on, on that one, the perspective that I'm going to teach tonight is they were using a fear tactic. Right? We saw it then, and we see it now. Um, that was a Roman community for Roman officials. They didn't want anything going wrong. They didn't want civilian uprises. They didn't want slave uprises. They wanted their nice, peaceful retirement community. So when they see someone starting a civil disturbance, or might be a civil disturbance, you, you make an example of that person. So what, what they would do is they would snatch those individuals out of the crowd, throw them a beating, which we saw the, the couple of them get, put them in jail, and then release them. That way it puts a fear into them, because they spent the night or two in jail. And it also puts the fear in the rest of the population. You mess with us, you're going to get beaten, and you're going to go to jail. We see the exact same thing now. When I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, we would have to deal with mobs. We'd have to deal with crowds. When we were running um, some bank jobs, when we were doing uh, security for voting stations, which was a huge one, we finally got them to vote after like 100 years or whatever it was of not being able to vote. Or when we were passing out food, beans, crops, new crops within the plant, whatever the case may be, the people would go crazy. And a lot of people that were there were still sympathizers of the old regimes. And they would start a civil disturbance. So what we would do, we would march out seemingly on, like not being on the offensive. We'd open up a gap a little bit. We'd run out there and we'd snatch that dude up and we'd bring him back in. We didn't beat on him or nothing, so don't, we didn't do that part. But we would take him... And basically, we'd hold him for a couple hours, and we'd go drop him off on the other side of town. That settled everybody down. That's what the, the locals were doing. Obviously, Paul, um, Silas, Timothy, Luke, those guys weren't doing anything that was unlawful, but they were angry. They were angry that they had lost um, their profit. The locals were angry because they lost their profit. They're not going to go to the Roman official and say, hey, that guy cast out a demon, and now she doesn't, you know, She's not in the fortune telling anymore. The Romans don't care. Likely don't believe it either. So they whipped up some other story, fed it to them. They ended up in, uh, in jail. The problem was is they were Romans. Roman citizens had rights. You were not allowed to punish a Roman the same way you would punish somebody else, somebody that did not have citizenship, somebody that wasn't carrying um, a rudis, or whatever they were using in that particular region. Slaves 
they were granted their freedom and citizenship. They would carry a rudis. It was basically a little story of how um, they came to their, their freedom and it was proof of their freedom, almost like a passport kind of. Not allowed to like crucify a Roman, not supposed to. Romans were not supposed to be passed off into slavery. Romans were not supposed to be punished at all without having a fair trial. So we see Paul asserting himself, as Paul does. Paul is quite bold, especially if you start reading any of his other letters. He lets him know, you beat up Romans, and you threw us in jail. I'm not going anywhere. They can come get me out. Now, everybody's kind of wary of Paul. He can move about the city of Philippi freely and unhindered. So, now we're going to go back to verse 24. Having received such a charge... He put them into the inner prison and fashioned their feet in stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Everybody's watching us, especially now. Everybody's looking for answers. How many of us see it in the news, television, friends, family, asking about the end of times, asking about the scripture, asking about what it means to be saved? Everybody's watching you. They, wanna, they want you to justify your, your actions, your mood, your countenance. They want a reason. They're going to see one of two things. They're going to see you in your trial and your tribulations, in your times of torment, your times of despair, your times when you're kind of at that low. They're going to see you kicking and moaning, screaming, pouting, cursing, throwing things, yelling at your dog, yelling at your wife, kicking your car, however it is to react. They're going to see you singing, praying, talking about the word. They're going to see you with a smile on your face. One of the things that separates us from the world are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy. Which is why Paul's letters are always so fascinating. Grace and peace. You're not going to have peace to understand the grace of God. The people see that joy. People see God's grace. People see your speech. They see your act. They see just your countenance. See it raised. They see how happy you are. And they want to know. Bob, why are you so happy? That dude just ran into the back of your car. You got fired at work today. Dude, for a month, you're going to work like 90 hours a week. Why are you so happy? This is why. People are watching you. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. So it's not going to specifically say it, but it is an act of God that's happening. No earthquake. I don't care what kind of earthquake it is. It's going to undo all your chains, all your shackles, and then open up all the doors so you can just leave. Not going to happen. 
And the keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Another fun fact about Roman law. If you were given a prisoner, and or prisoners in this case, because this is the Philippian jailer, and you lost your prisoner, um, you bore his burdens. You bore his punishment. If his punishment was death, you would be put to death. If his punishment was to be put into slavery, you would be put into slavery. Plain and simple. So I don't know how many people were in that prison. I don't know what their crimes were or what their punishments were, but it had to be pretty bad. The Philippian jailer, as we're going to see here uh, later on, he was a family man, had wife, had children. He was that afraid of the punishments he was going to face that he was going to take his own life. Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do not do yourself no harm, for we are all still here. So Paul absolutely could have taken as, as many turns out of here as he wanted to. He could have just shut up. The Philippian jailer would have taken his own life, and he'd have got up and he just walked out of the jail. Again, we see Paul's heart, just like how our hearts are supposed to be when dealing with our enemies. People that are slandering, lying against us, beating us, whatever the case may be, like we see here, we can just keep let them going on the path that they're going on, or we can do what we're called to do, and we can show love. We can show brotherly love. We can show how to bear one another's burdens. They're watching us too. And it's fantastic seeing Paul's heart that way, that he is still willing to reach out to the jailer. We also get another look at Paul's heart, Paul's mentality. Paul, before he went on his missionary journeys, um, and you can read about his, his trips in a, in a pretty good order, and I think in uh, chapter 1 of Galatians, um, Paul learned, no doubt, what happened with Peter. In chapter 5 and 12, Peter goes to jail. Similar things happen. One, there's, you know, doors come off, whatever else. He walks out. Another one, he pretty much just gets up with the angel and just like mosey on past everybody. Paul, in j- or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter in jail gets released and he gets to go. I'm pretty sure Paul knows this. This is sometime afterwards. Paul doesn't get to get up and walk. So now we get to see something, uh, a spiritual attack that's probably hitting Paul right about now. Peter got to go home. Why am I still here? Reading the Word, staying in the Word, praying every day, maintaining that relationship. Paul right now being led, very likely by the Spirit, "Mm, I understand your shackles are off. You need to stay here and do the work that God has for you to do here. So he sits. We can see how that would kind of twist us up a little bit, kind of get in our way. Well, why does God not like me so much right now? Because I still sit here in jail. And you can see how that would twist things up. Very important to maintain that relationship. Very important to stay in tune with the Spirit so you know exactly where you're supposed to be. And believe me when I tell you, when you do read your Bible, when you do pray every day, when you do your diligence to maintain that relationship, you're going to hear Him. You're going to feel the Spirit working in your life. 
just like Paul did in the beginning of Acts chapter 16. The Spirit did not permit them to go into Asia. The Spirit did not permit them to push west into Europe. It doesn't say how the Spirit stopped them or how the Spirit was forbidding them. Could have been from someone walking up on the street. Jesus says no today. Could have been the thorn in Paul's side. Could have been unfavorable weather, which Paul has seen quite a bit of during his missionary journeys. Could have been a million different things, just like in your life. Well, I want to go and preach down at the river today. No, probably not a good idea. It's not the day for you, and you're not the tool for the job. Maybe your time doesn't come for another you know, five years to go and do that. Sometimes your purpose is to sit in the stocks and wait to fulfill your ministry. Don't put God in a box. Don't put the Spirit in a box. You do have a ministry. He's going to reveal it to you. Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He was scared, and he was probably in awe. Everybody was still there, not just Paul and Silas. Everybody in the jail was still there. Everybody was still there in the jail. Guys that were probably going to be crucified, guys that were going to be put to death, guys that were going to be put into slavery, whatever it is, they were still there because the light was there, because the ambassadors of the word, the ushers, the servants, they were still there. Just like we saw in Lydia. She wanted that fellowship. She had the luxury of getting that fellowship in her own home, and not a jail cell. But we can see how desperate everybody else in the jail cell, see how desperate they were. They still wanted to hear the word. They weren't done. The jailer, he wasn't done. We're not done. And now we have that million-dollar question that we get asked probably on a daily basis. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they responded, Pay your tithes. Trim your beard. Go to Calvary Chapel. Tie your shoes. How do they respond? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the answer. I know it kind of it hurts us a little bit uh, because it's human nature. You know, what must I do to be saved? Oh, you got to believe in Jesus Christ. Mm, and you got to pay your tithes. Mm, oh, you got to go to church. Mm, oh, you got to do this. Oh, you should probably dress nice. Oh, you need to do this. Oh, you probably shouldn't do that. We enjoy putting a burden on people. Not, not, not that we enjoy it. I don't mean to say that. It's not that we enjoy it. But it's just within us. It's human nature. It's sin nature. It's flesh nature. Flesh nature that when we do something bad, we do something else to make up for it. Society teaches that. Those of us that are married, you learn it in marriage. Honey, I didn't do the dishes. Here's some chocolates. Didn't groom the dog. Here's some flowers. Baby, I love you. It's duck season. Here's a new car. Like we, that's just kind of, you know, how we do things. We learn it, you know, we learn it as kids. I'm not saying it's wrong. You know, when you're as a kid, you know, you do something wrong. You know, you go back over there and you give them like a little toy car. It's like, you know, I'm sorry. You give them a hug or a high five or 
I don't know, whatever you do as kids. Um, that's just kind of how we learn it. We, we, we carry that same mentality with us into our walk with the Lord when that's, that's not from us. We saw in the beginning of chapter 16 that they received that word from the, men, um, from the, from the elders in Jerusalem, which at that point in time would have been James as one of them, as one of the elders. James, half-brother of Jesus, letting him know you do not have to keep that decree. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to adhere to the Mosaic law to be saved. This is what you do to be saved. This is what salvation is. Believe on the name Jesus Christ. So when Paul and them were passing that word through everybody, it was, it was growing. It's a relationship thing. And Paul is right here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. You and your household is not one of those doctrinal facts. We see it a lot to where one member of the church, one member of the household gets saved. Necessarily, the rest of the household does not get saved. There's many cases where that doesn't happen. Obviously, there's also a lot of cases where that does happen. What Paul's probably going off of here is, I know, gleaning from the spirit, spiritual insight. You know what? You get saved as the head of the household. Your family's going to get saved. We do see Lydia earlier in chapter 16. She gets saved. The rest of her household gets saved. A tremendous blessing. A huge blessing when your family is harvest-oriented, when your family is ministry-oriented, which is why families, marriage, is under fire so much today. It's a powerful force, a family that follows God, a family that worships God is an important thing. Marriage is a sacred thing, an important thing. Because when you attack a marriage, or you, even worse, you attack a family, look at how many victories he's getting with one blow. Typically, um, one believer, if not both, walk away entirely. So not only has he destroyed the sanctity of marriage, he's also broken off one or two of the believers. And if there's children, sometimes that might uh, roll down here into some of the children as well. I'm not saying it's always the case, but we can see how it happens. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So we see the exact same thing with the Philippian jailer that we saw with Lydia. Two immense things happen at one time. The Philippian jailer, someone that's in a position of authority, taking um, his, his inmates out. They were baptized, and immediately he craved that fellowship, even to the point of rejoicing. He washed them. He took on the servant's heart. He washed up Paul and Silas and their wounds, and he fed them craving that fellowship. It's fantastic seeing the turn of the heart. And it's not an easy thing to do. Pride for that Philippian jailer would have been a hard one to swallow. Um, I've never been to jail. I've never been to prison. I've never been arrested. But I have family members that are cops and prison guards. I have family members that are in the system. I know for a fact that for either of them to be in there is not fun. For an inmate, obvious reasons, for the, the prison guard or a jailer or a cop, you're in jail or in prison half of your day. 
half of your work life, you're in prison. As a prison guard, you have to maintain your authority. You have to maintain respect. You have to maintain fear or whatever leadership style that you choose and works out best for you. Just like many of us are probably, you know, managers. You have your own teams you got to, you know, keep track of. If you're too lax with them, what happens? They're going to bulldoze you. If you're too harsh, you're the bad guy and nobody actually likes you and that might break your heart or not. I don't know. But it does make the workplace a little more hostile. And it changes things. The Philippian jailer did not know that these guys were going to be released the next morning. At least we don't know that he knew that. But the Philippian jailer still removed them from the jail. They baptized him. He washed, the jailer washed their wounds, fed them, and took those two into his house with his family, and they rejoiced together. awesome. It's fascinating to see what the Spirit does. So before we close, what I would say, my friends, is Paul was in a Philippian jail. Beaten. Paul was in a Philippian jail. Beaten. What is the name of your jail? Work? Relationship? Your walk? What is it that's your suffering? And what is your name on your door? Paul was stuck. Paul was hurting. Paul, probably at this stage, not aware of what the Spirit wanted him to do, what God wanted him to do, and why he was there. Paul's response was joy. Paul's response was singing hymns. Paul's response was praying. Ours has to be the same way. The harvest is full right now. There's work all over the place. Everybody's watching us. All of us have our hardships. Could be jobs, single parents, could be dealing with rowdy family members, all sorts of things. You can meet it with a spiritual attitude, with a believing attitude, or you can meet it with a worldly attitude. If you meet it with a worldly attitude, I promise you it's going to make your ministry that much harder. Not just to do, but it's going to make it a lot harder to even see, to even identify what it is that you're supposed to be doing. Be prayerful, be joyful, and always singing in all circumstances. We learn that also in Philippians. Paul writing that letter back to these guys while he's sitting in another jail, still praising God, still winning people to Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for a beautiful night. 